Well, let me add my welcome to that of Denny earlier. Whether or not you're a longtime part of the Woods Edge family or you're first time ever, uh, thank you so much for joining us this Easter weekend. We appreciate it. We're honored. As Denny mentioned earlier, we've got a clear purpose as a church. We want to love Jesus. We want to love him back. We want to journey together. Nobody walks along. And then we want to bring the hope of the gospel to the world, to the people around us. So that's what we're all about. Now, many of you perhaps have at some point in your life heard the name Eric Weinmayer. You may not remember it, but Eric Weinmayer is an extreme adventure athlete. He's been on the cover of Time Magazine before. He does things like climb mountains and uh, sheer rock faces and kayak tough rivers and things like that. But the thing about Eric Weinmayer is that Eric Weinmayer is blind. And he's gone to the top of Mount Everest. And he's climbed the seven summits, that is, the highest peak on each of the seven continents. And uh, if you've ever been to uh, uh, Yosemite or seen the pictures of El Capitan, this is the, the most impressive of all to me. El Capitan, 3,000 feet straight up, wall, the nose of El Capitan. He's climbed that and he's blind. I mean, that's just crazy stuff. He has kayaked the entire length of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, a most rugged section. I mean, he's done all these crazy things and he's blind. He tells this story about the first time he went to Everest to climb it. Now, there are Sherpas, the native Nepalese who uh, focus on uh, guiding others up Everest. And when the Sherpas noticed that he, he seemed to have, you know, regular looking eyes and he didn't fall over every few minutes, uh, 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 there was a, a rumor circulating that he's not really blind, it's just a lie. So this is what he did about that rumor. He called one of the leading Sherpa guys into his room and he leans over and lowers his lower eye, eye, left eyelid and he pops out the prosthetic eye into his palm <laughs> and extends it to the Sherpa. And he says, I can do the other one if you'd like. <laughs> and the Sherpa, no, not necessary. I got this. The rumor died down. All the skepticism about his blindness vanished. Well, this Easter weekend, it would be fitting for us to look at the most well-known skeptic in all the Bible. He's one of the 12 apostles, Thomas, commonly or at times known as Doubting Thomas. And we're going to look at the day that all of his skepticism about Jesus vanished. So that's where we're headed this morning. Now, we're going to be in John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have accounts of the last week of his life. In fact, about a third of the Gospels focus on this last week because that was the whole point that Jesus came to die on a cross in your place and mine to pay for our sin and then to triumph over death on the third day. So all the events were leading up to that. My favorite account of the resurrection comes in John's gospel. It's John chapter 20. Now we're going to look at some preliminary events before we get to a little bit later on doubting Thomas, skeptical Thomas. Uh, but here's the backstory. Early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, one of his female followers, one of the women followers, and two other women, we know from other Gospels, make their way to the tomb. Now, this is why they were going to the tomb. They wanted to anoint his body with spices because they had had to rush the burial. On Friday morning, Jesus is executed by the Roman authorities by the most brutal way they could execute criminals, in their mind, 
uh, the the form of crucifixion. You know, real spikes driven through his hands and his feet and and that led to suffocation and all kind of pain. So that happened Friday morning. Friday afternoon, Jesus was dead. And they ascertained that he was really dead, and they had to rush his burial before Shabbat, or Sabbath, began at sundown on Friday. So they quickly got the body down. They had to wrap it in these burial cloths, these long burial cloths, kind of like we might wrap a bandage over and over around our our, our knee or something. They wrap the body in a burial cloth, take him to a tomb, think something like a cave in the ground, roll the stone, this big heavy stone, over the entrance, and there they put him right before Sabbath begins. Now, Friday night is when Sabbath begins, all Friday night, all Saturday. You don't do anything. That's the day of rest that they took very seriously. Now that the night has passed on Saturday night, Sunday morning is the first opportunity that some of the women go back to the tomb, crack a dawn, and they're going, they're going to go in, they're going to find somebody to help them get into the tomb, get the stone out of the way, and they're going to anoint the body with spices. It was just the, the, the burial customs of the Jews of this day. Now, you've got to understand, if you're going to understand the gospel narratives about the cross and the resurrection, is that the disciples were not expecting resurrection. I, I know Jesus had told them several times, Look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go through a trial. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But for some reason, they didn't have to get the faith. They, they just, it was so totally foreign to them, they don't understand. And so on Thursday when he's arrested, Friday when he is crucified, Friday afternoon is Sabbath when he is buried, they don't expect resurrection. They're completely dejected. They're despondent. They're devastated. I mean, all their hopes were in Jesus. They expected him to overthrow the Romans, establish his kingdom, and they'd be right there with him. They are completely devastated. So Mary Magdalene, these two women, they go to the tomb Sunday morning, and that's where we pick up the narrative. Would you stand with me as I read God's holy word? Stand in honor, please, of God's word, the eternal word of God. I'm in John 20. I'll begin in verse 1. Later on, we'll get to Thomas. We'll start with verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and both were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw, the linen cloths lie, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's word. Please be seated. 
Okay, you get the picture. Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb early. She's not expecting the resurrection. The, the stone has been gone. That surprises her. She must have looked in and seen that it was empty. She immediately concludes the only thing she could, somebody has stolen that body. Remember, they're not thinking resurrection. By the way, sometimes we have a little bit of intellectual condescension towards people in other ages uh, and people in the ancient world. Sometimes we think, because knowledge has steadily advanced, that we think, well, we're smarter or more intelligent than the people in the ancient world. They're probably a little bit dumb. That's not true. And in fact, the people in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish culture at this time, were no more likely to believe in someone rising from the dead than you and I would be. I mean, they wouldn't be predisposed at all to believe something like that. In fact, for the disciples who had had their hopes crushed, uh, it was quite the opposite. They were not expecting, it could not get into their mind. They were, rel- they were skeptical about the whole idea of resurrection. So Mary Magdalene gets there. She sees that Jesus is not there, and she immediately concludes they've stolen the body. She takes off running to tell the disciples, particularly Peter and John, who are the two leading disciples, to tell them. And verse 2 we read, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now let me pause right there because there are several details in this passage that are most fascinating and we've got to understand. Now John is referring to himself here as the disciple that Jesus loved. This is the The apostle John, the disciple John, he's writing the gospel of John. He's writing about himself, but he doesn't say, and he said to Peter and to me, or he said to Peter and to John, he says, Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And it's fascinating because three times in the book of John, the gospel of John, that's how he refers to himself. Now, think about that, if you would, with me. That sounds a bit odd. Uh, Would you ever say that? Have you ever said that about yourself? Uh, David, would you ever, you know, kind of write an email and rather than signing David or say, David, the one whom Jesus loves? That'd have to be a special situation. It might sound a little bit precocious for you, David, something like that. But what about just the, the way you see yourself and think of yourself? You know, in our day and age, maybe in every day and age, we think of ourselves primarily in terms of our role in life and role with other people. I'm husband, I'm a wife, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a friend, uh, or maybe I'm an engineer or a businessman or a homemaker, or, um, you know, think of your role, which maybe sometime if you're retired, especially in terms of, you know, I'm a golfer, I'm a runner, something like that. But, you know, things like that. But would you ever think of yourself or even say, yourself, you know, I, I'm that person that the God of the universe is crazy in love with. I mean, what, what if you just saw yourself? That What would that be like to feel that way? There is a writer of our day and age. He died a few years ago, and I especially appreciate him. He was a Catholic priest. His name is Brennan Manning. He struggled with alcoholism much of his life and got rescued and he just fell into the most uh, tender love relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that God used Brennan Manning more than anybody in our day about the love of God. One of his stories that I, I like uh, involves an Irish priest. I bet he knew this guy personally, but I don't think it says. But this Irish priest was uh, on a walking tour in rural Ireland, uh, an area of Ireland, a parish in Ireland. And he's walking out in the country, 
probably a dirt country road, but he's walking out in the country one day, and there is an elderly man that's kind of kneeled over to the side of the road. I don't think of a ditch, but I think he's kind of the side of the road over by the trees. And what he's doing over there, he's praying, you know, by himself, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, and this Irish priest kind of comes up. He must be overhearing him and listening to him for a while. And, and, and he says to him, he says, says, you must be very close to God. He sort of interrupts him. You must be very close to God. And the, the, the elderly man uh, pauses. He looks up, sees this stranger here. And he smiles, and he smiles, and, and he says, um, yes, he's very fond of me. Now, now, think about that. What a thing to say about God. Yes, he's very fond of me. You know, until you understand the heart of God for you is good, life doesn't really begin. If you don't understand, not in a cerebral way, but in a heart way, deep in your soul, that the God of the universe is crazy in love with you, life hasn't really begun, and that is the story of the gospel. That is the, the message of the Bible, that the God of the universe pursues you in love, and the greatest expression was when Jesus Christ came, and especially when Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins and mine, and he triumphed over the death on, on, on the dead on the third day. So uh, here's John saying, the disciple, here's the one whom Jesus loved. All right, back to the story and Mary Magdalene. So she, she arrives to, to tell Peter and John, and she's so excited, no doubt. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I mean, somebody has stolen this body, and we don't know where they, where they have put him. But she's all worked up, and they're worked up about it. I mean, they have this emotional, visceral reaction. They take off running to the, to, to the tomb to check this out. Now, I know that in our day and age, it's not a big deal for adults like you and I to run. But in the ancient world, they didn't run. You know, that was just kind of beneath their dignity. But they take off running. I mean, they're so a move. Now, John tells us that the other disciple outruns Peter. He's younger. He gets to the tomb first, but it's interesting what he says. He doesn't go in. He's a little bit bashful. I mean, what's going on here? He, but he, he, he looks in, and he sees the burial cloth, that long linen cloth I talked about earlier, the shroud that they would bury him in. He sees that linen cloth. Now, when Peter arrives a few seconds later, probably gasping for breath, he barges right in. You know, no problem for Peter. And, and the text tells us in verse 8 or verse 6, then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and get this, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up by a place by itself. Now, now that is some emphasis. In fact, they told us that John saw that, and then they tell us that Peter saw it, throwing in the detail about the face cloth, and then they're going to later say about John, he comes in to see it again. So uh, Peter immediately recognizes that body wasn't stolen. If, if there were grave robbers, they, they, they would not, uh, you know, unwrap this long linen cloth around the body. And they would not have taken that uh, face cloth and folded it up by itself. They'd have tossed that thing aside. They'd just grab the body and gone. It immediately realizes, oh, yes, this is what Jesus has been saying. He's risen from the dead. Oh, it hits him. And then the text says that John follows him in. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. 
When he sees the linen closet, it makes sense to him. It all comes to him. Oh, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, after Peter and John see this, and they probably are overcome with emotion, make their way back to the house where they were with the other disciples, Mary Magdalene, she stays there. Apparently, she followed them to the tomb, and she stays, hangs around the other, the outside the tomb. She's not going anywhere. And that's when it happens that the risen Jesus, for the first time, appears to somebody, and he chooses Mary Magdalene. Now, that is fascinating. Because you've got to understand, the Jewish culture at this time was so patriarchal, so man-centered, that little girls growing up, they, they didn't have school, they didn't have education, uh, they were looked down upon. In fact, a Jewish man at the time would daily pray um, something along the lines of, Lord, thank you that I'm not a woman, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that is, people like you, uh, thank you that I'm not like that. Um, so they were looked down upon, they were considered second-class Christians, second-class citizens, that they could not serve as legal witnesses in a court of law. And yet, the gospel accounts, all four testify, Jesus appears first. His first witness is a woman. In fact, in fact several women. Now, just think about it. If the gospel writers were making up all this thing and trying to fabricate a story about resurrection, they would have never, ever had Jesus appearing first to women, that would not have been cogent or persuasive. The only reason that they would put that detail in about being uh, Jesus appearing to a woman first is if that's what actually happened. There's some reason Jesus appears, chooses to appear, kind of throwing over the cultural norms and appears to the women. So Mary Magdalene sees Jesus. So they have a brief conversation. She takes off running back to the house again. Now she just ran to the house and said, they've stolen the body. Now she uh, takes off running, and this time she says, we see in the next paragraph, I have seen the Lord. I've seen him. He's alive. And our, can you imagine the disciples' response? I mean, they're so dejected. They're so devastated. You know, it's not just their uh, discouragement. They, they're, they're covered over with guilt because in the hour of testing, they all deserted Jesus. You remember Peter said, I'd never deny you. And remember the gospel says, and all the others said the same thing. They all said that. And they all deserted him. And then there's fear. They're scared to death that we're going to get crucified next. I mean, they took our leader. And so they're locking the doors and they're terrified. So all these scary emotions they're going through. And now Peter and John are saying, man, the linen cloths are there. He must have risen. Now Mary is saying, I've seen him. Can you imagine all that is in their heart? So, that night, the disciples, that first Sunday night, the disciples are together in a house, still trying to process all of this. Probably nonstop chatter all afternoon. But we read in verse 19. And now we'll start coming to Thomas. Now in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, that was a, 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 an idiomatic Jewish saying. It would be shalom, you know, peace to you, may, all peace. And he knew they had guilt. They had fear. They had dejection. They were devastated. Peace. That's what I want. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't, Peter, why are you doing deserting me when you promised 
and he doesn't get on to them, is peace be to you. Jesus offers us peace. Now, here's the thing. Thomas wasn't there. Don't know where he is. Bible doesn't say. Uh, he was somewhere else. Maybe he's so devastated he couldn't get out of bed or something, but he wasn't there. Now, can you imagine the disciples, the 10 disciples? Remember, Judas is off the scene. Thomas isn't there. The 10 disciples, when they see the risen Lord, how excited they were to tell, tell Thomas about this. You know, maybe the next day, the next morning, two days later, whenever they see him. Can you imagine them just, you know, when they see him, Thomas, it's all true. We've seen him. He's alive. And Thomas is so skeptical. No way. You see the narrative that John is writing about, an eyewitness Beginning in verse 26, verse 25, where Thomas responds, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Very emphatic in the original. I, there's no way I'm believing. What had happened to him that he was so crushed, so devastated, so covered with guilt and regret that he... I'll never believe it until I see it myself. You know, I could get it if it was only one disciple telling. But ten disciples, his closest friends, you'd think, man, that's skeptical. That's really skeptical. Thomas wasn't buying it. And so, by the way, you know, you, you wonder, what, was he afraid that he'd get his hopes up and they'd be crushed again? You know, that, that happens with us sometimes. We're, we're afraid to, to believe certain things because we're afraid that our, our hopes will be crushed and we'll be disappointed. And maybe when it comes to the gospel, that, that you're afraid to believe like Thomas was. Maybe you've been listening to the voice of the enemy who is out to ruin your soul for all eternity, who's whispering to you, it's not true, it's not true. Don't believe it. Just trust yourself. Don't listen to that voice. He is out to, to ruin you. All righty, eight days go by. I bet they're wanting every night for Jesus to come back. Thomas is with him. He's not going to miss it again. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, keeping those doors locked, aren't they? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Three times in the passage, he's going to say, peace to you. I don't come here to scold you or condemn you, but to give you peace. And he dies to make it possible. Now, do you see the scene? Eleven disciples now in the room, talking. Jesus walks in. Probably, I take it, probably his resurrected body walks right through the door. Now, there's Thomas over there. You see Thomas? Thomas is the one over there who's been skeptical. You know, I'm not buying until I see him. But then Jesus walks in. And he's the one with his jaw hanging open. He's the one with the eyes as big as saucers, heart pounding. Jesus walks in and get what Jesus does. Verse 27, he walks right over to Thomas, no doubt looks him right in the eyes and basically quotes Thomas when Jesus wasn't there. He says, Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. 
He doesn't need to touch him, does he? He's kind of like that Sherpa with Eric Weinmayer. No, not necessary. I get it. And he got it all. My Lord and my God. He saw the brutal crucifixion. He saw the burial. He saw the death. And here he is, standing right there, risen king. My Lord and my God. Imagine the flood of emotions that he was feeling. Jesus' response is one of the most important things in the Gospels. You know, um, how does all the world regard Jesus? What's the attitude towards Jesus by all the non-Christians, by the intellectual elite, and uh, everybody who's outside the Christian faith? This is the attitude. He was a great teacher. I mean, just look at his life. I mean, he clearly wasn't a, a lunatic. He wasn't, you know, crazy. He, he, he clearly was a good person. I mean, still today, all around the world, all across Africa and Asia, all across the world, orphanages, hospitals, uh, feeding the hungry. I mean, the things that are done. In his, he, he, was, he was an incredible life. But, but they would say, but he's not God. He's not Lord. Now, just think how Jesus responds. If one of his disciples is, is now going to worship him, basically, as my Lord and my God, if all those folks are right, that Jesus is not that. He's just a teacher. He's a brilliant teacher, but he's a teacher. I mean, how would Jesus respond? He would say, you know, okay, I appreciate that, Thomas, but let's don't get carried away here. I'm a teacher. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a, your leader and your teacher, but I'm not Lord and God. But he not only receives that worship, but commends everybody else who comes to the same conclusion. Notice what he says again in verse 29. How he responds to Thomas. Thomas, my Lord and my God, Jesus responds in 29, have you believed? Speaking to Thomas, Thomas, have you believed? Because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And by the way, that includes all of you, all of us. Blessed. Thomas, you've got it now. Finally, you've come to the conclusion, you believe, blessed are all those down through history, including those folks at Wood's Edge in 2019, blessed are those who have not seen me in the flesh, and yet they believe the word of God. Blessed are they. And what a response. You know, um, nobody in history, I'm talking no, not Buddha, not Muhammad, no religious leader in history would say the sort of things, did say the sort of things that Jesus did. He claimed to create everything to be the judge of the living and the dead, to be able to forgive sins. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the only way to the Father. The whole gospel of John has been building to this point in John 20, 28, 29. For example, the gospel of John begins Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking about Jesus, and it elaborates that. And then he follows it with seven carefully selected I statements. I am the resurrection and the life. Who talks that way? I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the bread of life. I am the door. Seven I am statements, each one echoing when God in Genesis and Exodus 3 says to Moses, when he asks his name, I am that I am. People knew what he was saying. There are seven of these I am statements, seven carefully selected miracles out of the hundreds he did, seven messages 
that they include, all building up to this climactic point in John 20, 28, where Thomas, out of his skepticism, says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus commits everybody else who comes to that same conclusion. And that is the point of the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God, not just a teacher, not just a great worker, but none other than Lord and God who has come to the planet to rescue us. Now, think about the current day. Last Sunday, all of you golf fans had a great Sunday afternoon, didn't you? That was fun for you guys. It's fun for even a non-golfer like me. When, Matt, when Tiger Woods, after 11 years, incredibly bleak years of great physical and emotional and marital and all kinds of problems he had, that after 11 years of winning his last major championship, he wins the Masters. And it just seems like uh, even non-golfers just love that. Michael Jordan, I just read uh, last day or two, said, that, that's the greatest comeback I've ever seen. I might disagree. I might take the resurrection as a better comeback than, <laughs> than that one. But it was an incredible thing. But nobody talks about Tiger Woods as anything other than a great athlete, a great golfer. But Jesus was worshipped as Lord and God, and he received it. And he is the one who stepped out of heaven and came to this planet to die for you. And you are the one loved by Jesus. And your life doesn't begin until you get that, until you receive that and believe that. Now, um, all the things that people are looking for, everything you've been looking for all of your life is never going to be found outside of Jesus. It's not. Everything that you long for deep in your heart is going to be found in Jesus. He said, I am the life. I am the resurrection. All the life is in him. And if you are here today and you've never put your trust in a Savior, this is your moment of destiny, to breathe a prayer, like the prayer we see in Luke's gospel, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You recognize your sin. You recognize your need for God's mercy, and he, and he gives it in Jesus. And if you've never done that, do it now. Not about religion, not about trying hard to be good, not about churchianity, about a Savior, about Jesus, crucified, resurrected. All you long for is found in Him. Now, most of us have done that. And perhaps you're here, and you've done that sometime in the past, but your heart has grown cold for some reason or the other. Life is hard. Life is unfair. And maybe you've grown angry. Maybe you've grown distant and kind of stiff-armed God out of your life. Friends, all you long for is found in Him. And He is saying to you, because you're the one loved by Him, come home to me. Come home to me. And I would urge you to do what Thomas does. Surrender everything to Him, my Lord and my God. He's your risen King. Stand with me, please. Friend, if you've never trusted Christ, this is your moment. Just breathe a prayer right now where you're standing. Oh, God, have mercy on me. He's already heard that prayer. If that's your heart, he's already done it. He's given you life in Christ. Trust Jesus as your Savior. Friend, if you've been away from him, if, you've, if your heart has grown cold or distant, come home. He says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Love him back 
Lord God, we worship you this Easter, that you loved us first. We bless you, and we say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Church, we're going to celebrate communion. And let me explain that if you're newer at Wood's Edge. We do this every Sunday. It's not a religious ritual. It is a heartfelt act of responsive love. This is what it is. Jesus told us to do this. He didn't tell us to follow a certain ceremony or a certain liturgy or, you know, exactly what words to say. But he did tell us why to do it. He said to do this to remember me and remember some me. Remember me who died for you because I loved you. Remember me. And so we take the bread representing the broken, crucified body. It's all about the death of Christ. We take the cup of juice that represents the shed blood and we actually drink them and eat them. We, we receive them as a symbol. We're receiving Jesus. He's our Savior. We don't save ourselves. And so when you take communion in grateful joy, Lord, thank you that you died for me out of this kind of love. And it's open to anybody who's trusted Christ. And if you've never trusted Christ, do it right now. And you can take it. If, you know, if you may be here and you're just investigating and you're not quite ready for that. That's great. That's okay. But, but for all who have trusted and been willing to receive him, then the communion tables are across the front, the middle, and the back. Come, take the elements, and remember that Jesus died for you. Come and worship. Come and worship.